We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Today is Monday, October the 25th, 2021. Today's show, I break down everything that happened in College Station over the weekend as the Gamecocks get throttled by the Texas A&M Aggies by a final score of 44 to 14. Guys, I'll give my full takeaways from the ballgame. Also, I will talk my biggest takeaway from Saturday's game. We'll also hand out some TSUS game balls, talk slap dig of the weekend. I'll hand out the weekly cock of the walk award as well. Again, guys, I just try to dissect what went wrong over the weekend for Sal. Kind of also, guys, we have your listener questions, your voicemails, and a fantastic throwback conversation. Great interview with former Gamecocks ball carrier Rob DeBoer. As Rob joined me in late November of 2019 to talk about his career in Columbia. Really good stuff. We got, guys, we got a packed show here on a Monday, and it's all brought to you by our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. Guys, Upstate Movers Group, superior moving service. They bring care and attention that the companies can't offer because they're just too busy maintaining trucks and profiting off of them instead of focusing on service. Guys, service is what separates Upstate Movers Group from the competition. They're not a trucking company. They're a moving services company, and they're also employee-owned co-op. The movers are paid twice the industry average, and everyone on the crew is invested in your success. They have dedicated professional crew members, and they also offer black glove service. They offer end-to-end packing services, custom crating and packaging for special items, and cleaning services as well. They're founded by Greenville Natives and University of South Carolina alumni guys, so a Gamecock-owned small business. They also offer 20 years of project management moving experience, and they can offer logistics and solutions that traditional moving companies simply do not have the skills for. Guys, whether in the upstate or across the state of South Carolina, if you have any moving needs in 2021, be sure to check out our friends over at Upstate Movers Group. You can find them on social media, at Upstate Movers Group. Of course, if you have any other questions, go to their website, upstatemoversgroup.com. That's upstatemoversgroup.com. Be sure to check them out and tell them Chris from the Spurs Up Show sent you. Let's get it. know that picture 
of Zeb Nolan laying on his back, looking up in disarray. That basically summarizes how I feel today in regards to breaking down this game from over the weekend and talking about this game and just the multitude of errors that were made in College Station, Texas. Guys, I I petition to make it where South Carolina never plays Texas A&M again. I would not shed a tear if that were to be the case. We'll get into all that and more, guys. Again, happy Monday. Hope you are all doing well. I'm Chris Phillips with the Spurs Up Show. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in. I do hope this show finds you well, no matter where you are, what you're doing, whether you're on the commute, you're in the office, you're on the job, you've got the day off, maybe you're in class, whatever it may be, folks. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in again. And we're all very familiar, it is another Therapy Monday as we all try to get through this this week and, and just... Um, make sense or make nonsense of what in the world is going on with Gamecocks football to this point as we have now completed eight weeks in this 2021 football season and Shane Beamer's first season as head coach. Again, we're going to dive into that, all that much more because, again, guys, I've got a lot of thoughts, a lot of comments on what happened. Again, Gamecocks losing to Texas A&M 44 to 14. But before we do that, on a brighter note, on a much more positive note, if you will, a couple of quick reminders. First things first, guys, I know it's a bye week, but we will be live at Tin Roof this Wednesday in the Vista, 5 to 7, taking your questions, your comments, your calls, kicking it, having a really good time at Tin Roof, 50-cent wings, $3 drafts in the Vista in downtown Columbia. Guys, would love to have you come out there. Again, Tin Roof, 5 to 7 on Wednesday will be out there. Uh, also, guys, I want to give you a quick update. With the bye week upcoming this weekend, uh, you guys know the normal schedule, five podcasts for a week, the Daily Crow each and every single Monday through Friday, noon to two. But with there being no game this weekend, uh, yours truly is actually going on a little bit of a vacation, if you will, down to the great state of Florida. So there will be no podcast on Thursday and Friday, nor on Monday or Tuesday of next week. Again, just simply due to there being no game this weekend. Also, that means, of course, there will be no Daily Crow on Thursday, Friday, or Monday, Tuesday. So for that four-day period, no Daily Crow, no podcast. Again, of course, guys, I'll be active on social media, creating content. It's what I do. We all know the drill. But no podcast, no Daily Crow. Wanted to let you all know, again, yours truly is going to take advantage of the bye week. Uh, get away from the football thing a little bit, and uh, I think we could all—I think we could all use that detox and use that break at this point. I think we're all really looking forward to what the bye week presents and a chance to reset and sort of gather our thoughts, if you will. But want to let you guys know: Thursday, Friday, and Monday, Tuesday of this week, going into next week, I will be in Florida on vacation. No podcast, no daily crow. But again, stay tuned to all the content. Again, I appreciate you guys rocking with us, showing love, showing support. Again, those—all those that came out to the Greenville Watch Party at downtown Greenville at Carolina Alehouse. Thank you all uh, so much. I'm really developing a soft spot for the upstate, man. The upstate Gamecocks, you guys always show up and show out. And uh, even though the game was abysmal, um, I I still had a blast watching the game with you all. Also, shout out to all my Braves fans, by the way, you're tuned in. The Braves are headed to the World Series. The Braves really salvaged the weekend for yours truly. But again, we're not here to talk Braves. We're here to talk Gamecocks. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this thing. 
South Carolina loses 44 to 14. And the one thing that continues to go through my head, guys, because I came into this one with very, very painfully realistic expectations, right? I told you guys all week last week, hey, it's a bad matchup. Texas A&M owns you. I'm done giving this football team credit when it's not deserved. And so I reset my expectations, and I think accordingly. And so I expected Texas A&M to have their way with you. But the phrase that keeps going through my mind is this. My expectations were low, but holy shit, I don't know that they were that low. I don't know that they were so low where I was thinking to myself, hey, at one point, Chris, it's going to be 44 to zero. At one point, Chris, South Carolina is going to have six yards of offense. Guys, the score was 31 to nothing at halftime. At halftime, it was 31 to zero. Guys, you had negative 11 rushing yards at halftime. And at one point, you were being outgained. Literally, I think it was like 460 for AM to six yards. Six yards. At some point in sport, man, at some point in life, you just got to admit when somebody, an opponent, an entity, whatever, has the better of you. And you got to tip your cap and say, hey, Texas A&M's your daddy. They own you. They own you. Texas A&M owns the University of South Carolina right now. There's no way around it. What's, again, what's most concerning, guys, for me, because I, I've echoed and I, I've really done my best to inject perspective on a week-to-week basis. I'm, I'm going to continue to do that, by the way, because here's my thing, guys. I see people on social media and people reach out to me and it's like, why can't we say anything in year one? Why can't we call for Beamer's head? Why do we have to trust Beamer? Why should you trust him, et cetera, et cetera? My question back to you guys is this, what choice do we have? What choice do you have? Because it is year one of a brand new head coach. And you hired the guy. You have to believe that those in charge hired Shane Beamer because they believe he can be the answer this football program is looking for. So when I'm continuing to pump in perspective and say, trust Shane Beamer, trust that Shane Beamer will make the proper moves over the bye week and throughout this season, I'm saying that because, again, number one, I do like Shane Beamer. I was a fan of the hire. I believe in what he's doing. But also, guys, again, it's like, do you really have a choice? Are you going to fire a guy after one season or two seasons or even three seasons? Because it's just like I talk about in real life, guys. Again, having a positive attitude does not guarantee a positive outcome. But having a negative attitude Well, it damn near guarantees a negative outcome. So I just choose right now, year one, to be level-headed, keep things in perspective. It is a complete rebuild. However, though, however, again, everything was bad Saturday night. Coaching, players, execution, personnel, everything was bad. Even special teams, even Beamer Ball was bad. The thing that is most concerning, and again, I will say this, though. I feel for the Gamecocks fan base, and I've had sort of a similar reaction to you all where I think the reactions have been very rational because we can deal with losing. I talked about that late last week. We can deal with losing. 
but it's the comedy of errors and getting embarrassed that we cannot and should not have to tolerate. And I understand the competition has stiffened up. I understand, like, Texas A&M is a good football team. They've got a ton of talent all across the board. But the fact that it feels like this football team has gotten worse on a week-to-week basis. Again, I talked with Perry Orth in the preseason, right? And we talked about our year one expectations, what we most wanted to see. He and I both agreed, hey, whether you win four games, five, six, seven, eight, however many you win in year one, what we most want to see is a team that gets better from week one to week 13. Right? From week one to week 13, this team improves. Doesn't matter if it's minimal improvement. Doesn't matter if it's just barely any improvement at all. But improvement week to week to week. Players starting to grasp the system and execute and make plays and starting to have success and build confidence. Guys, not only are you not doing that, I mean, watching that team against Texas A&M, it looked like a bunch of guys who had never played football before. Why does our football team look like a bunch of guys that, hell, we ain't even practiced. We're, we're, we're not even practicing. It looked like the first game we played ever, ever. Again, I'm all aboard the Shane train. I'm with Shane Beamer. And I, but I blame everything. I'm not just going to put it on the roster. I have been critical enough about the roster. We all understand the shortcomings of the roster. I get it. Hell, I've harped on it more than anybody else. I can deal with being outclassed. I can deal with being outmanned. What I can't deal with is feeling like we're not even prepared and ready to go. Again, I'm going to exert the most patience probably of anyone with Shane Beamer because you know what? Again, I very much understood the assignment when he was hired. Hey, he's a first-year coach. He's not a good coach right now. He's not a great coach. He's probably not even a good coach. Shane Beamer's learning as he goes. As painful as that is and as, and as nails on a chalkboard sounding that is for many of you, that is the reality. That's the guy you hired, guys. When he was hired, I told you, and I said this, this is a huge risk. I still believe in Shane Beamer, of course. I, again, week eight of year one, if you're jumping ship, you have every right to do that. But I want to see this thing play out. I'm going to at least give him the opportunity to fail before I, you know, hold him to the chopping block in year one. I, I, just, I just don't think that's productive for anybody. But this football team not even looking ready to play. I mean, there are teams out there, guys, that have lesser talent, that aren't very good flat out, that at minimum go out, though, on a week-to-week basis, and they compete. They compete. And they show some spunk, and they show some heart, and they show some effort. And I'm not saying our guys aren't showing effort and heart and all those things. But there's teams that go out there on a weekly basis and, you know, give other teams a scare. You see upsets all the time in college football. Not only are we not competing for an upset, we are getting our doors blown off. And again, that does not just fall on coaching. That falls on all parties involved. But some of that blame should be shared with coaching. And I'll tell you this, guys, just getting right into my biggest takeaway because I'm sort of dancing around the point I know you all want me to get to. Again, 
I've told you guys many times here on these airwaves, I'm not going to be a fire this guy or fire that guy. Not, I'm not going to have that energy in year one. But I guess call me a bit of a hypocrite because my biggest takeaway from Saturday is that Greg Atkins needs to be fired. Listen, I'm not going to make T-shirts that say fire Greg Atkins. And I know many of you are saying, Chris, but what about Marcus Satterfield? He ain't doing a good job either. He ain't doing worth a damn. But it all starts with the offensive line, guys. The offensive struggles all start with the offensive line. And poor Zeb Noland. Like I told y'all last week, poor Zeb Noland. I mean, that picture, like I said, that photo of him laying on the ground, looking up at the sky, he had to be contemplating his future as a football player right there. He had to. That's certainly what I'd be doing. Like, you know what? To hell with this. Give me back the clipboard. Jason Colton, y'all can have it. Because I ain't doing this shit no more. Putting myself at risk behind this shoddy offensive line. The offensive line is dog. It's garbage. And I posed this on social media, and I'll say it here on the airwaves to you all. Let's just say hypothetically after last season ended, right? And Kevin Harris led the SEC in rushing. He didn't have a good year, but he led the SEC in rushing. He ran the football so effectively. Let's say that at the end of last season, I went into a coma, right? And I woke up Sunday morning, the day after the Texas A&M game, to see what had become of the Gamecocks running game and rushing attack. How would you explain to me what happened? How would you explain to me what happened? Because, again, I have put responsibility on the players, right? You got to go recruit big uglies that can move the pile. You will not get back to being competitive and winning football games until you can move the pile. By the way, both offensively and defensively. I told you guys, South Carolina can't stop the run. And that showed again on Saturday night. I, I, it feels weird to harp on the defense because the offense is just such a glaring issue. But your defensive line, your defensive front, they need help. You need some bigger bodies or something because the Gamecocks for a couple of years have not been able to stop the run with any sort of consistency. And if you can't stop the run, you're not going to win. The team that can run the football can stop the run, they win. Pretty simple. But focusing on the offensive side, again, I, I, I've, I've held the players accountable, and certainly I think you need to go recruit some offensive linemen. But to go from... What we saw last year to this product, I mean, that much of extremes with all the guys you had returning, right? With all of the experience, with all the starts, with all the successes, where's the disconnect? Where is the disconnect? And I just, you know, again, am I ready to fire Marcus Satterfield? You know, many of you insinuating that if, if Shane Beamer doesn't make a move over the bye week and fire everyone, that he's not the man for the job. To, again, to insinuate that, guys, is, is absurd. It's a little aggressive, in my opinion. And I'm, and I'm still as crazy as this sounds, guys. I, and here's the thing. I, again, I trust Shane Beamer. Whatever move he wants to make, I'm game with it. If he wants to fire him all this week, then so be it. He's the head coach. He's the one getting paid millions of dollars to make the decision, which – it's so funny, by the way, because this Gamecocks fan base is so tough, you know? It's so tough because when I was the fire must champ guy, I was toxic. I was negative. I was terrible for the Gamecocks. I was terrible for the University of South Carolina. But now that I want to exert some patience and not 
react emotionally and overreact one way or another. Oh, you're an ass kisser. You just want to be liked by Beamer. You just want to get media credentials. You want this. You want that. Stop kissing so much ass. Just tell it how it is. I mean, I get it, guys. I get the culture of social media. It's what I do for a living. Um, And this is a great tweet. Again, I think I've mentioned this before from Colin Calher, where he says, it's easier to join the avalanche than to be buried by it. So it's not popular to have the calm, rational opinion, right? It's much more popular to be on an extreme one way or another. So if Shane Beamer wants to keep Satterfield at the end of the season, if he wants to bring him back next year and give him a a much greater sample size, I wouldn't have an issue with that because it all starts with the O-line. Like, here's the thing. I, I don't think the play calling is great either. But, hell, there's a lot of plays that I can't even tell if it's a good play call or a bad play call because the offensive line doesn't give you more than a second to operate. It's insanity. It's purely insane. So making a a big move like firing a coordinator or, God forbid, your head coach, I don't want to overreact and react emotionally and say, oh, that needs to be changed because that's a big move. But a freaking position coach, bro, give me a break. Greg Atkins should be dusting off his resume and looking for a new job this week. At minimum by end of the season. If you want to wait till end of the season, so be it. But there's just obviously a disconnect there, and you can't win without a solid offensive line. Hell, an average offensive line. And you ain't even got that. You ain't even got that. Your running game is a joke. You can't keep anyone upright. Quarterbacks are running for their lives. I know it's sexier to talk quarterback and receiver and tight end and this guy and that guy. And I know that talking offensive line is boring and it's not what people want to point at, but that's the problem offensively, guys. That's the problem. But what concerns me is through eight weeks, you are what you are and you know your offensive line isn't very good. Are there adjustments being made to that fact? Like, I just don't know why it feels since Steve Spurrier departed, why offense is just, it's like rocket science for us. I don't remember the last time I went into a game and I thought, I know what the Gamecocks want to do offensively. I know what the goal is, right? Hell, all we heard all summer in the preseason was we're going to throw it to the tight end. We're going to throw it to the tight end. We're going to use our tight ends. And you feel like they should be some of your greatest weapons in this offense. And then you look. Jaheim Bell has one catch for negative three yards. Nick Muse didn't even touch the football. I mean, what is going on? Again, I understand the personnel issues. I have beat that into you guys' brain all season long. But, man, like at some point, you got to just take the pieces you have and do the absolute most you can with it. And maybe A&M, wasn't the greatest measuring stick because they're just so much better than you guys. And I told you again last week that it was a mismatch all across the board. Every single position, they're better than you. Bottom line, they just are. But it's, it's one thing to get beat. I can live with that. It's one thing to get beat. It's another thing to watch us go out there and get flat out embarrassed and run off the field. I mean, what is being said in the locker room when you're down 31 to nothing? You know, what is the overall morale of the football team? You know, because it's, 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 
in year one of a brand new system, a brand new culture, a brand new coaching staff. I'm sure it's very hard for these players not to start doubting and questioning things. You know, again, we talked about early in the season when you beat the likes of an East Carolina or you, you even beat a Troy or whatever, when you had successes, those are the things you need as a new coach to help reinforce the culture you're building and the systems you're instilling. And like, hey, this is why we're telling you to do this. This is why we're telling you to do that. This is why we're guiding you in this direction. When you're getting beat like a drum, how can Shane Beamer sell anything to these guys? Because if I'm sitting there as an offensive player, I'm saying to myself, what? I'm not listening to what you say. Look at the result. It obviously ain't working. Again, A&M outclassed you every position on the field. It's, but, I, I, again, when you're at the point where you're, you're getting outgained 460 to six, six yards, it's not acceptable. And, again, I'm not sitting here telling you guys, fire, shame, or listen. Here's the thing, because I, I think many of you want me to go on some rant like that. Guys, I'm in it for the long haul. Okay, when he was hired, I at least understood the assignment again of, you know what? It's not going to be an overnight thing. It's not going to take a year. It's not going to take two. I think it's going to take four, five, six years. And okay, hey, I came into year one with very low expectations, basically no expectations. If this same problem we're seeing right now, if this is happening in year three, four, five, whatever, hey, make the change. He ain't the guy. He has not learned. He has not made the adjustment. But, you know, I'm not ready to say that yet or pull the trigger on that yet. I mean, again, what, what do you, you know, I sit here, it's crazy. Right before I hit record, I'm like, what am I even going to say? What am I going to talk about? Because when you get beat the way we did, what can you say? I mean, what can you say? And now you go into the, go into the bye week. I, I will be very intrigued to see what Shane Beamer does this week. Because, no, I'm not going to sit here and preach to you guys that, oh, if he doesn't make a move this week, if he doesn't fire someone, you know, he's, he's obviously just showing he's not the man for the job. I'm not going that far. If he wants to wait till end of season, so be it. And it is kind of wild. Again, guys, I talked to you a lot about the culture of football. And, I mean, the culture of football, it is cutthroat, right? We spend all preseason long hyping these guys up. And, oh, you know, we love each other. And Satterfield, he's great. And Atkins, he's great. And we're going to do coaches mic'd up videos. And everybody loves everybody. And it's all great. You start losing, though, and you put the product you're putting on the field right now, hope you enjoyed your – Eighth month stay in Columbia. Hope you enjoyed your nine month stay in Columbia because you ain't going to be here much longer. It's just the reality of the sport. And when you get paid the type of money these guys get paid, it's cutthroat. And you got to be quick to make a decision. I will not shed a tear if Greg Atkins is not employed this time next week. I, I will not shed a tear at all. Because you're, I think you're, you're, what you're, what you're facing right now if you're Shane Beamer is, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly selling, right? When you're a head coach, you're a CEO, you're in a position of power or leadership, you're constantly selling. Always be closing, right, for the, my, my salespeople that are tuned in. Always be closing. You're constantly selling. So Shane Beamer, every single year, is selling himself as the solution to the football program, this football program's answer, the right man for the job. And it's just going to be really hard, in my opinion, to 
sell a lot of sunshine and rainbows. If you go into next preseason and this entire staff is still together the same exact way it is. Now, I want to point something out really quickly because I have not touched about this or touched on this on the show because I, I don't like giving too much light to the Facebook group and, and, and uh, message board rumors. But I will tell you this in regards to Marcus Satterfield. If any of the rumors are true in regards to problems within the staff and the staff not getting along and there being issues with Satterfield and other assistants, then you know what? If Shane Beamer wants to make the move, I'd have, I'd have no problem with it. None. And I think that actually would help Shane Beamer because as I told you guys before, the reason I wouldn't make the move is because it's like, how do you go get another OC? Hey, you're under a one-year clock. If you don't get it done, we're going to fire you. But if that's going on behind the scenes, maybe that kind of gives you the out. I, I don't know. Just throwing that out. But something's got to change, man. So, something's got to change. Something's got to change. Bottom line. Um, there's just, it looks like there's no plan. Again, we all understand the shortcomings with the roster and the lack of talent. We totally understand. This team is who it is. It's four and four. And I try my hardest, guys, and I'm still going to continue to do this. I try to keep things in perspective because, again, in the preseason, I had you predicted at this point to be five and three. You're only one game off that mark. You're four and four. You're only one game off. But it's the way it's happening. It's the way it's happening is what's so excruciating and so painful to watch. It's the way it's happening that's hard for fans to deal with. And I don't blame you. Again, Gamecock fans, we don't ask for a lot. We don't ask, we don't ask for a consistent winner, really. But damn it, if you're not going to win, be entertaining and be competitive. And when you can't even do those two things, that's an issue. That's a problem. So, hey, I, I don't know if coaching staff changes need to be made. Again, my biggest takeaway from Saturday is I think Greg Atkins should be let go, whether that's right now, whether that's next week, whether that's into the season. It ain't working out, man. It, it ain't working out. The offensive line is a complete disaster. It is a mess. Again, defensively, again, we spend the entire time talking offense because that's the sore spot. Defensively, I wasn't surprised what happened. You know, A&M, again, they're loaded. They're big physical on the offensive line. Isaiah Spiller and their running backs are really, really good. Calzada's a five-star for a reason. He's a legitimate player. Anaya Smith's a good player. Wattemeyer's unguardable. We don't have a guy on our roster that can guard him. I think we have serious issues at the linebacker position. I think that's one of the reasons the run defense is so porous. We need to go out and recruit some big-time linebackers that can help in, 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 run, uh, in the run game. But it just all comes back to offensively, man. It all comes back to offensively. And, and, and what do you want to be? What do you want to do? I'll tell you this, guys, about quarterback. Listen, I, I like Zeb Nolan a lot. I, I think Zeb uh, – we owe Zeb a lot, you know what I mean, for this season and what he's done and, and the good football he's played. I wouldn't mind not seeing Zeb Nolan out there again the rest of the season. Again, I, I did not buy into the crazy hype coming in this game of, oh, Colonel Zeb. And I, I get it's a feel-good story, and I get that he won the game against Vandy. But, uh, you know – He's not the future of this program. You know, you, you got a guy, Jason Brown, who I think because of COVID will be back next year. You got a guy in Colton Gothier, who's a true freshman. And I understand you don't want to just throw him to the wolves and let him take the licks. But again, going back to the whole sales thing, going back to the, 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 the selling thing, if you're Shane Beamer and, and you're at least playing the young guy and you're getting the young guy involved, you can at least say to your fan base, hey, we might not be winning, but look at this. We're building towards the future. You're building towards nothing right now with Zeb Nolan. You're building towards nothing. 
And so, again, unless Colton Gothier just doesn't compute the offense, which I guess could very well be true, you know, why not give him a shot? Why not give Jason Brown a shot? Heck, I've been tough on the kid, right? I, I don't think he's an SEC caliber quarterback, but, hell, you know, when a guy comes in and, and, and competes and, and makes plays, let's see more. To hell with it. I'm down. I know what Zeb Nolan's going to give me. Colin Hill 2.0. I know what he's going to give me. Why not give somebody else a chance? Again, there's getting beat, and then there's getting embarrassed. And I can deal with the getting beat thing. Even Georgia, I was like, you know what? They're just better than you. They're just better than you. And like I said at the beginning, my, my, the thing that keeps going through my head is, hey, my expectations were low, but holy shit. So, hey, when you guys ask me, hey, Chris, should we fire Satterfield? Should we fire Atkins? Should we fire this guy? Here's my thing. I trust in Beamer, and I suggest you do the same. Shane Beamer's paid millions of dollars. He's a big boy. He's paid millions of dollars to make these decisions. And I'll go back to this, guys. I don't care who the OC is. I don't care who the O-line coach is. I don't care who the quarterback is. I just want to score points. I just want to win games. That's it. And right now, all I know is that ain't happening. And it's the lack of progression, and it's the lack of improvement that is the most concerning thing. I understand the challenges you face. I understand you don't have Luke Doty, which all those people who were slandering Luke Doty, God, I mean, you know, was Luke perfect this year? By no means. But, damn it, I think he would have given you a better chance than Zeb Nolan did. And I just try, that's all I tried to say all season. Whatever. It, 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 that's water under the bridge. He's out for the year. But – I. I'm beyond words a bit, guys, because I I, I I I didn't expect much, but wow. Wow. I mean, and I, it's, it's year one, right? Steve Spurrier had blowouts in year one as well. Who can forget the Auburn game in 2005? Antonio Hefner, quarterback, and you have to call two timeouts to open the game. and You got blasted. So because you lost to A&M by 30, that's not an indictment saying, oh, Shane Beamer's tenure here is going to be a complete failure. Like, drawing that conclusion after any individual game from year one, I think, is a mistake. I just do. I think it's a quick trigger. I think it's an overreaction. But Shane Beamer's learning on the job, right? So are all these other coaches. But you better learn fast. You better learn very quickly. Because you come out and get blown out against Florida, and things start really unraveling, and you don't look like you've shown any signs of improvement over a bye week, I mean, hell, man, something's got to give at some point, right? I printed the head coach's name on merch, guys. I ain't going to sell out early on the guy. I'm not going to be year two Oh, we should fire. I, that's just not going to be me, okay? And I was willing to accept, hey, it's going to be a multi-year project. But I'm telling you, you get to year three, you get to year four, and this type of shit is happening, you are not going to last. Because you're making way too much money, and there's other schools where their coaches are taking steps forward and are making progress. That's all we're asking for is progress. Again, I fully trust Shane Beamer's going to get this thing right. Fully trust in the guy. But I'll be interested to see where he goes from here. Because, hey, this is his baby now. This is his program. This is Shane Beamer's program. You just lost by 30. And it could have been worse. Could have been much worse. 
something has got to give. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Something has to give going into this bye week. Something. You got to change up the mojo somehow. Whether that's firing Greg Atkins, that's firing Marcus Satterfield, that's changing the quarterback. I don't know. You got to do something, though. You've got to do something. You, you cannot just sit on your hands and say, hey, we're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to go back to the film room. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Shane Beamer, Satterfield, these guys are much smarter than I when it comes to offensive football and football in general. But holy hell, something's got to give. Something's got to give. Be curious to see what Shane Beamer does. Uh, all right, let's move into TSUS game balls, guys. I want to start uh, this dude scoring his first, first touchdown as a Gamecock. And, you know, I, I have not been thrilled with his play. I'll be totally honest. Again, he ran for seven, seven carries for 25 yards. But, again, his first touchdown as a Gamecock. And I will tell you guys this. It was very tough to find game balls and cock of the walk after a game like that. But Marshawn Lloyd, want to give him a game ball. I know it's been a struggle for him. It's been a rough stretch. And I still think there's things he really – really needs to work out because, you know, I think you could take a page out of Corey Boyd's notebook of, hey, all that juking and jiving and all that, that's great. But at the end of the day, gain yardage. Don't lose yardage. Because if you're losing yardage, you are not going to have a very successful career. I can tell you that right now. But giving a game ball to Marshawn Lloyd, his first ever touchdown is Gamecock. My second game ball, going to Trayvon Kenyon, the tight end, who caught a touchdown from Jason Brown, had just two catches for 20 yards, but did have the touchdown, we love to see the tight ends get involved. And then my final game ball, guys, of course, it's got to go to Jalen Foster. I mean, this dude is the most consistent, the most baddest player on your team. He's a badass Emmer effer. Uh, seven total tackles, one interception, had the, the fantastic pick, by the way, uh, leading the SEC in inter- interceptions with five, might be leading all that college football, by the way, but five interceptions on the season. The dude is just making the bag this year. What an incredible game for him. And uh, so my final game ball again does go to Jalen Foster. My slap dig of the weekend. Guys, this one was sort of tough to pick because there wasn't one that was obvious. But you know what I came to the conclusion of? My slap dig of the weekend, everyone that is involved with the Gamecocks offense and play calling and execution and, you know, anybody who, who has a hand in us not scoring points, Y'all are all the slap dicks of the weekend. I, I don't even care at this point. You're, you're all the slap dicks of the weekend. This entire Gamecocks offense, slap dicks of the weekend. Congratulations, guys. Uh, finally, y'all, my cock of the walk award. Again, this was not easy to pick. But you know what? I, I, I gave this award to a guy where his stats great, not necessarily, but nobody's stats were great on Saturday night, but came in and I thought, you know what? Did the most he possibly could with his opportunity – Quarterback Jason Brown, eight for 14 on the game. I know he threw two picks, but he did have the touchdown pass. Uh, you know, I, I understand maybe it was it against A&M's best, not necessarily, but I thought Jason Brown came in, uh, made the most of his opportunity. I think certainly has made it where there's a conversation at the quarterback position. And, uh, yeah, so I want to give it to Jason Brown. Why not? Why not? Again, you guys, it was not easy to pick the cock of the walk award, but uh, – yeah, anyways, that, that, that's, that's the breakdown of Texas a and guys. Again, we're, we're going to continue to break this thing down and dissect all week. Again, I, I'll summarize it in just saying this. Texas A&M owns you. They're better than you top to bottom. Your roster has deficiencies, has holes, a very, very imperfect football team, a very not good football team, a football team that has a plethora of problems and makes a comedy of errors every chance it gets but a football team that I will say this does have enough pieces to not get thoroughly embarrassed on national television. 
lot of people need to look themselves in the mirror this week during the bye week and really ask themselves, am I doing my best possible job to get this thing right that is Gamecocks football? What standard am I holding myself to? Am I doing my job from players to coaches to administration? Everyone needs to look themselves in the mirror. And Shane Beamer has got to look himself in the mirror and say, you know what? If it's going to take a difficult decision to get things on the right track, then I got to make it. Because guess what? I'm making the big bucks. I'm the dude, and I'm not going to let any of these other assistant coaches or any of these other people ruin my first experience as a head coach. So what does that mean? Are there changes made? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I'll be very intrigued to see how Shamey handles it this week, but something's got to change. Hey, the roster's not very good. I get it. Make an adjustment. Somebody, for the love of God, make an adjustment. Life's full of adversity. Sports is full of adversity. Things don't go the way you want them to. You're faced with realities. It's all about how you react and can you make an adjustment. Is there an adjustment made? We'll find out. All right, guys, let's get into your voicemails. We have your listener questions as well. Uh, we'll go ahead and dive into these voicemails. I love you all, too, and I love the passion of Gamecock fans. Yeah, the offensive line, dog. No other way to put it. Uh, I appreciate the call, though, guys. I, I missed the first name, but it sounded like Eddie Murphy was the other one. Uh, either way, no, appreciate you guys. Appreciate the call. Sounds like you had a fun Saturday night. So uh, <laughs> appreciate you calling to the voicemail line and, and uh, spicing things up here on a Monday. Well, Chris, that was, that was, that was pretty brutal. Uh, being a Carolina fan for over 30 years, like, I don't know if I've seen that bad of an offensive performance. And this is coming from somebody that watched the 0-11-99 team. Um, you know, obviously before the drives that Jason Brown did, like six yards of offense before that. Just like 99% of it was the offensive line. Like, and just for instance, the, the snaps. Look at the snaps. Like, even when Jason Brown was in, snaps were to the right, snaps were to the left, snaps were high. They snapped it before Zeb was even ready. They did the same thing to Jason Brown. They snapped it when the motion man went in front, went in front of the, the quarterback. They snapped it, rolled off his leg. Like, just over and over again, just mental mistakes. And even the touchdown pass Jason Brown threw, turning time got destroyed immediately. Like, it got broke through immediately. Brown had to escape the pocket, made a great throw. But it's all on the offensive line. And, look, I'm not making excuses for Marcus Satterfield. I think there is issues with play calling, especially throwing the ball short of the stick on fourth down that they've done the entire season that I'll never understand. But it's really hard to call plays, do anything, 
when as soon as you take the snap, there's somebody in your face, like immediately. It's like playing NCAA 14 on Heisman with the sliders turned all the way up and yours turned all the way down to zero. Like you take the snap and the entire defensive line's in your face. You can't do anything. So, like, it is what it is. Like, the defense did a, uh, pretty much about what I expected. So, you know, got got an off week, thank mercifully got a bye week or off week next week to figure something out. But just, Jesus, man. Anyway, looking forward to the podcast on Monday. Tim, appreciate the call, man. Always great insight from you. Uh, no, I agree, man. Listen, everything you said, I know it's not the sexiest thing to talk about with uh, the offensive line. People want to blame quarterbacks, receivers, tight ends, whatever. But, you know, it, it all starts up front. And, again, with the Satterfield thing, um, he's certainly not above criticism. And I, I think at this point everybody on that staff and on that football team has earned all the criticism they're getting. But with the play calling, it's like the O-line is so bad, I don't even know if it's a good or bad play call because it's not having time to develop. How can you tell? It's, it's pitiful. It, it's, it's tr- I, I don't know that I've seen this bad of an offensive line at South Carolina. I mean, it's, it's been a very long time. So we'll get into our final voicemail, guys, and then we'll get into your listener questions. What's going on, Chris? Uh, this is Austin. A um, couple of thoughts from the game. You know, it was just bad. All around, you just got beat. It felt a lot like uh, – Arkansas when they had Darren Fadden took the rock and we just we just got beat everywhere. Um, you know, I I've been a lot like you with Marcus Satterfield and you know n- not a fire Marcus Satterfield guy, but at this point, you know, I- I'm starting I think to become one. You know, it's just it's not working ultimately, and um, it's a problem. So. You know, we'll see what happens with the bye week and, and how they play the rest of these games and finish out the season. But, you know, like I said, I, I haven't been a fire any one guy. Uh, I've, I've tried to, to keep perspective and, and be positive and, and understand that this is a rebuild. But, you know, while it is a rebuild, there are pieces there. Um, you know, Jaheim Bell, a guy who made a whole lot of plays for you in the past couple games, he was he disappeared. and And that's one thing I think why I'm, I'm worried about Marcus Satterfield. Number one, I think the offensive scheme, it just seems like it's too complicated. And I'm not saying our guys are stupid, but it, it seems like, you know, Marcus Satterfield is trying to do too much. And ultimately, you know, whatever the case may be, if it's not working, you need to make some changes. And it doesn't seem like he's wanted to do that. Uh, and that, that's number one. Number two, you know, I just think players have done disappearing acts in his offense, you know, Josh Van, Jaheim Bell, uh, Juju McDowell, Zaquandre White. You know, the list goes on and on of guys who we know have talent. I understand, you know, this team is not where it needs to be to compete with the elite of the SEC or the country for that matter. But there are guys on this roster that can make plays. And it seems like, especially under Marcus Satterfield's offensive approach, that guys have just disappeared. And we don't know where they are and we don't know where they've gone. So, you know, I'd love to hear what you think about that and how you feel about Satterfield at this point. But, you know, it, it's getting to, you know, there. it almost seems like there's no going back, right? It, it's, it's at a point of no return, and that's crazy to say in year one, but um, it just seems like we regress each week. But anyway, 
you know, I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate your perspective, and um, I appreciate you're honest about where we're at and hopefully where we're headed. But um, either way, it's always spurs up, and uh, thanks. No, Austin, great voicemail, man. Really, really good stuff. Um, yeah, so the Satterfield thing. That, that, that is the one thing I can't stand and can't tolerate is I feel like the lack of adjustments that are made. And you make a great point, though, in, the, in regards to us being at the point of no return. I, I tweeted this out Saturday night, and I'll say it here again, that, no, I've not had to fire Satterfield energy or even fire Atkins really until this point today. Um, and, and I'm still not, again, I, I'm not going out there tweeting hashtag fire Greg Atkins and let's put fire Greg Atkins on the teacher because he's a freaking O-line coach. You know what I mean? He's not the head coach. But uh, I, I will tell you this. If the offense continues – if we get out of the bye week and the offense just continues to look how it's looked, I don't know how Marcus Satterfield survived it. I, I just truly don't because that's the reality of college football these days. These guys are making so much freaking money, right? They're getting paid so much money. And just because you're making a lot of money, by the way, does not excuse like we should treat them like whatever and treat them as objects. These are human beings, right? These are human beings. But you're just making so much money. If you're not getting the job done, and not just not getting the job done, but again, not getting the job done and not making adjustments. And why does it look so hard? I mean, what is the confidence level right now? You talk about the disappearing acts, you know, with Josh Van and Jaheim Bell. And I, I just, again, I'm not an OC. I'm not a football coach. But how can it be so hard to go into a game and say, hey, Jaheim Bell? Needs to touch the ball six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Josh Van needs to have five, six, seven receptions. This guy needs to touch it. That guy needs to touch it. I mean, and then Jaheim Bell has one touch. How, how can that happen? I don't understand. And again, if we just continue to see no adjustments made, I don't know how a guy like Marcus Satterfield survives it. Again, I just want to score points and win, man. I just want to score points, but I don't give a damn who the OC is. So, hey, if you're not getting the job done, Shane wants to make the move. I, I, I fully trust him. So, Austin, great voicemail. Great call, my friend. Thank you so much. Uh, let's go ahead and get your listener questions, guys, and then we'll jump into our interview. Owen Murdahl says, how long will it take for us to have an actual season? You mean like a good season? Hell, I don't know. Cobreeze, uh, 843, Jason Brown getting playing time is long overdue. Yeah, when you're down 44 nothing, it's time to switch quarterbacks. I agree. Uh, Andrew, the textbook, the snapper looked horrible. Yeah, John Strickland needs to help out Eric Douglas or something. My guy, John. Go give him some snapping lessons, bro, because that was abysmal. Uh, let's see. Thomas Armstrong looks like we should start Jason at quarterback. I don't care if it's against the backups. He looked great. At this point, I'm, I'm open to anything. I'm open to anything, man. Uh, Mary Lee Lockhart says, my faith resides, sadly, Jason Brown. <laughs> God. B. Robert Ory, we have a lot of talent coming in. People forget how much we lost after Champ left. No, I understand. it. I, I get it. I, I, I Trust me, guys. I've been, I've been pounding the drum of the roster and the shortcomings of the roster, but Holy shit, I think you have enough pieces to not get just thoroughly embarrassed like you did on Saturday night. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Maybe you, maybe you just are that bad. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Dante for Kana, I love seeing Zaquandre White get the ball. Nice to see something on offense at least. Yeah, I think Zaquandre White at this point should be your starting running back. I mean, he's the most productive. Why not? He's the most productive. I think this is Austin that just left the voicemail. Haven't been a, haven't been a fire because it's Austin G underscore 45. Haven't been a fire sack guy after this. I think I'm becoming one. Offense looks completely confused, like they're thinking too much. It, it's 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 rocket science, truly. Uh, Tyson A. Kelly, what's more impress? What's more depressing? Inflation rate of the offensive line. Anyways, let's go, Brandon. Uh, the offensive line is the most depressing thing in my life right now. 
Let's see. Chris Forel, I will never doubt your predictions again, my friend. Won't win another game. <laughs> I didn't want to be right about this. Dude, I wasn't even right. I didn't think it'd be this bad. I didn't think it'd be this bad. So, hey, I'm Blaine. Says, start Jason Brown. Don't, re- don't waste a year, Colton. Replace Satterfield. Recruit your ass off. I hear you. KS Johnson, 901. Need to revamp that offensive line. Problems all year, but glaring gaps exposed today. D. Rose Forrest, the same crap, different week. Final question, Raleigh.Dotson says, Brown should be the starter. He throws the best ball and gives us the best chance to win. Again, you want to make a change at quarterback, like I told you guys, what's the point in playing Zeb Nolan? What, what's the upside? What's the upside to playing Zeb Nolan? I mean, truly. Whether, I, I'd love to see Colton Gothier out there. If you want to roll with Jason, bro, I just want to score points. I don't even care anymore. I, I just want to score points. I just want to score points. Whatever. Give other guys opportunities. Just, I'm not saying change things for the sake of changing them. But people aren't producing. So change things up. Why not? Give other guys opportunities. So be it. Whatever. If it doesn't work, you can always just go back to where you were. Zeb Nolan can always just come back in. I don't know, man. We're a bunch of sad, confused, upset, wounded bunch of Gamecocks here on a Monday. So I feel your pain, guys, and I'm going through it my damn self. Uh, All right, on a bright note, let's get into our interview, guys. Great conversation uh, again, appreciate you all tuning in. But a great conversation from November of 2019, former Gamecocks ball carrier, Rob DeBoer. Rob, an awesome dude. This is one of the all-time interviews. Really, really good stuff, guys. So, again, I know you're going to enjoy again. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hey, we'll get through it together this week, guys. Therapy Monday. I think it's probably going to be a Therapy Tuesday and a Therapy Wednesday. It's going to be a long next couple of weeks. And it's going to be a very interesting week or two as we see what Shane Beamer does to solve these issues. Guys, appreciate you all. Keep your head up. It's always darkest before the dawn. Maybe, just maybe, things are still heading in the right direction. Only time will tell. Guys, again, thank you all so much for the continued love and support. Appreciate you rocking and rolling with us. We're going to continue to rock all week long. So don't go anywhere and stay tuned. All right, y'all have a great rest of your Monday. Enjoy this conversation with former Gamecocks running back Rob DeBoer. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up show is a game as a man that played for the Gamecocks from 1990 to 1993. He was a two-sport star on the football field, 386 carries, 1810 yards and eight touchdowns. He also had 35 receptions for 268 yards, was the captain of the South Carolina Gamecocks 1993 football team. He also played on the baseball diamond from 1991 to 1994 as a catcher, hit 283 over his career, 15 homers, 96 RBIs and was named second-team All-SEC in 1994. I'm very pleased to welcome the show, former Gamecocks two-sports star, Rob DeBoer. Rob, appreciate you taking the time, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Chris, for the intro. I'm actually glad you did that because half the people I meet uh, tell me how great I played in the Outback Bowl. Of course, they're speaking of Ryan Brewer, the other one <laughs> running back a decade or two ago. So it's, it's an honor and a privilege when people compare me to Ryan. I'm a bit older quite a bit older than Ryan. So yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine. Um, gosh, what, if it was 93 when I was a captain, it's been mm-hmm. 25, oh, I mean, it's 25 years. It's crazy. Yeah. Now I, I tell you what, to be honest with you, Rob, the thing that uh, I did not know, I did not realize that you were a two sport athlete as far as on the baseball diamond as well. I, I was uh, a little surprised to see that. Cause you know, we all see the, the football highlights on YouTube and stuff like that, but was very pleasantly surprised to see that. But I want to get into that in just a second, but going back to the beginning for you, you're a kid from Omaha, Nebraska. You end up at South Carolina playing for Sparky Woods, playing for the Gamecocks, again, being a two-sport athlete. Just 
talk about what was the recruiting process like for you? Because I know it was a lot different back then than it is now, but what was recruiting like for you? And, you know, what eventually led you to become a Gamecock? Well, it's really the unthinkable story, Chris. I want you to imagine when you grow up in Nebraska, there's no pro teams, right? Everyone, everyone in Nebraska is a Kansas City Chiefs fan and a Kansas mm -hmm. City Royals fan. Right. Or they're a Cornhusker, right? Mm -hmm. There's no other colleges. Um, you always rooted for the Big Red. I was no exception. So how on earth does someone from Nebraska, where South Carolina doesn't necessarily recruit, certainly not for football, in the 90s, how does that player end up at the University of South Carolina? And it has to do with the two sports. So I took my visits to the University of Nebraska, Notre Dame, Auburn were the three schools that I narrowed it down to. Um, Tom Osborne sat in my basement. I was the number one fullback on the board in the state and offered me a full ride scholarship. But I was drafted or to be drafted by the New York Mets out of high school to play professional baseball. So I was a two-sport athlete. Um, South Carolina was the one place, the one fit that would allow me to play two sports as a freshman. So um, back then I wasn't a church person, wasn't a spiritual person. I think now it's probably part of God's plan. But back then it was like, how on earth is this fullback going to the University of South Carolina? Well, it was because they were going to let me play two sports, although they didn't really recruit me as a fullback. They recruited me as a catcher and gave me the option to walk on as a running back at the University of South Carolina. If you look back, I mean, it, it, it dates us a bit, but if you look back to 1990, my picture and name wasn't even in the program. Why? <laughs> Who's this walk-on from Nebraska? Um, that ends up at South Carolina. So, you know, as good faith would have it, I went on to have an incredible career, never went to a bowl game, but mind you, they didn't have 30, 40 bowl games. They had a dozen maybe uh, back then, but here's the kicker of the story. You know, the woulda, coulda, shoulda. My backup. So the number two running back slash fullback. Remember, if you look back at Nebraska in those days, they ran the I formation. They still used a fullback. Um, my, the number two fullback on the board had committed to South Dakota state. Once Rob DeBoer says no to Tom Osborne in his basement, you know, so the recruiting process, I just, I don't know why it just ended up at the university of South Carolina. Mm. The number two fullback who was committed to another school ends up getting the scholarship as Nebraska works. They're going to recruit, you know, they needed a fullback. So they went to the number two fullback. Four years of playing football and baseball at the University of South Carolina, I never went to a bowl game. The backup fullback that ended up going with my scholarship offer to the University of Nebraska, his name is Corey Schlesinger, ended up with three national championship rings <laughs> and played for a decade for the Detroit Lions. So pretty bittersweet when you think, well, gosh, if he could have ended up with three rings, I'm sure I could have. If he played 10 years, I could have probably played 11 because he was my backup. You know, so coulda, shoulda, woulda, uh, bittersweet. But nevertheless, you know, our plan is what it is. And, and it's been uh, a pleasure to be here. As you know, as I mentioned, I've been here since 1990. Um, wife, kids, family, dogs, pets. Like, this is my life now. So 
uh, you can never look back and say, man, I should have done something differently. So we, you know, obviously had some great stories, some great times, uh, was part of the original team that entered into the SEC for mm-hmm. the first two years. South Carolina was still an independent, um, but we entered into the SEC in 1992. And so things weren't, uh, they were a bit rocky back then. Um, so, but here we are. So it's, it's, the program's been great to me all through. Um, uh, we're, you know, I bleed garnet red and love my Gamecocks to this day. What was your first love, baseball or football? It was 100% football. Um, as a matter of fact, baseball is just kind of this afterthought, but you never, you know, you, you look back in hindsight 2020, you just, why did I do that? You know, if I loved football so much, why did I play baseball? I never knew what it was like to have a spring break in high school, a spring break. in Like, ever since I was seven years old, I played football and baseball. Well, why would I stop playing baseball, especially, you know, with the opportunity to maybe one day play in the major leagues, which, by the way, was drafted out of high school by the Mets my junior year as a catcher at the University of South Carolina, was drafted in the sixth round by the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, but goodness, I can't go play baseball. I've got two days <laughs> and I've got to prepare for the upcoming season. So I right. said no. Um, year later, probably a better, more productive year, was drafted two rounds later by the Oakland A's. Uh, my senior year, zero bargaining power. Mm-hmm. Uh, my junior year, I was offered a six figure bonus, which was pretty good back then. Yeah, for and sure. they would pay for me to finish school. Um, probably a better player, probably better stats, but zero bargaining power. I ended up signing for $8,000 with the Oakland A's. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. and then went on to play, you know, a handful of seasons, never made it big time. Um, you know, I was a big weightlifter, probably worked against me. I hit a bunch of home runs, but couldn't hit the curveball. So here we are. I made it as high as double uh, A and, you know, went to big league spring training a couple of times, big league wow. camp, went to fall rookie league, which is where top prospects go. But my heart was never probably in baseball. I was one of those kind of ex-football weightlifting. Oh, by the way, I play baseball catchers. <laughs> so um, you know, as you know, at that level, you've got to be all in all the time. And I, I probably wasn't. I was going to say, you, you probably would have fit in pretty well with uh, Coach Tanner's team. Some of those bashers he had, you, kind of like a Phil Disher type. Absolutely. You know, I, I love <laughs> baseball. I, I love the, you know, swing hard in case you hit it mentality. Right. Um, so, it you know, it, it was, look, you look back, there's not many players that can – start or play and contribute or even letter in two sports all four years nowadays it's just so competitive so uh you know we're proud of the career we have we're proud of the you know impact and you know contribution we made but you know it's time to close the scrapbook and and move on and live life for sure so back to the football field, Rob, just curious. So obviously you get to South Carolina, fall of 1990. Uh, you're playing for Sparky Woods. Just just talk about – I know he was your coach the entire time you were there. What was the relationship like with him, and what were kind of your first interactions with Coach Woods? It's interesting. Great question because Coach Woods didn't know who Rob DeBoer was. <laughs> Imagine this. There was a graduate assistant who's actually gone on to be wildly successful 
now in the NFL. His name was Rich Basaccia. He was a graduate assistant. He wasn't even a, I mean, he was a GA mm. and nothing about nothing against that, but you know, he was one of these guys and it was funny. I was reminiscing with Brad Lawing, coach Brad Lawing, who was one of the defensive coaches, Steve Tannehill. And oh, yeah. he remembers the story of coach Basaccia as a GA saying, Hey coach Woods, I've got this really, you know, dynamic player coming. He's actually on baseball scholarship, but I think he'd be a great fit for our football program. Can I, you know, can we make him a preferred walk-on? Coach Woods is like, whatever, I don't care. Like, he didn't know. You don't recruit out of Nebraska, certainly not fullbacks out of Nebraska, um, if you're South Carolina. So um, the story goes, Sparky is at some coach's convention, and one of the Nebraska coaches says, Coach Woods, I got to hand it to you. Like, we keep all of the in-state players we want, but we didn't keep DeBoer. How did you guys get him? Sparky Woods didn't know what the name DeBoer even <laughs> meant. <laughs> so, suffice to say, the next day it was, I got more reps. Coach Woods knew my name. You know, he started telling me, good job. And, you know, but I was a walk-on. Like, I, I was a walk-on. I think how the rules played out is you ended up having to count towards a football scholarship. Um, so, you know, baseball kind of got a good end of that deal, but I don't even know who paid my scholarship that first year, whether it was the baseball program or the football program. I just know I wasn't in the listing program during football season. For sure. I think it's kind of funny, Rob, because you look at your stats and I'm just like, I'm wondering how do you go from literally being unknown football staff doesn't even know who you are to, I mean, your freshman year, 700 yards, six touchdowns. I mean, you made a big contribution as a true freshman. It's kind of a crazy, you know, again, going from completely unknown to a guy who, you know, was a big time playmaker that 1990 season. You know, it, here's what's interesting. That was the year Mike Dingle was like a projected first round pick. Like, here's this big six foot three, 250 pound running back, and I'm this little white fullback. I was strong and I was stocky and I was quick, you know, but certainly you're a walk on, you know, and you're treated like a walk on, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's where my success, Chris, has always been as the underdog. I mean, you look at me, I was five foot nine probably closer to five foot eight. I tell people five foot 10, maybe 11, but probably five foot nine. And I weighed 205 pounds my, you know, my freshman year, maybe, you know, I think maybe officially uh, it might've been a little more than that, but you know, that just looks good in the program. So uh, as a five foot nine, 205 pound running back, uh, no longer a fullback, I just, look, I knew one gear and it was high gear. And when I had my opportunity, I was going to take it. Here's what people don't remember. My very first series playing college football, Division I college football, I ran a busted pass route. I missed a block. And I don't know, I slipped and fell. <laughs> Whatever it was, the first three plays of my college career were all fails. Nevertheless, I was run back out on the field. And actually, no, that was the first game. Um, and I remember walking off the field, my dad and brother were in the end zone, you know, where you walk out of the tunnel, they were kind of high five. And I was just like, just so down and depressed. Like, what am I doing? I don't even belong on the field, but you know, my dad, a great man always knew what to say, how to say my brother was my childhood hero. You know, they picked me up. So it was, Hey, back to the practice field. And for whatever reason, I got a carry and 
started believing in myself against the North Carolina uh, in the North Carolina game. So I think it was my second collegiate game. Uh, got a carry, got a pass, broke some tackles, had a long run, scored my first touchdown. Um, and then everything just kind of, you know, I look back at my highlight tapes and yes, I'm talking about beta, which then became VHS. I think I've burned a few to DVD, but, but I still have those, a suitcase of these old beta tapes. And I look back on them from time to time. And like, I, I really was hard to bring down. Like I could get three yards. That was my mentality. Mm -hmm. I will get three yards. And if not, it's going to take more than one person to stop me. And if I look back at my career, like I wasn't flashy, I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest, but I was productive. Like I, I figured out how, and you know, I think that's one of the ingredients that is so often overlooked, you know, talent and star ratings and, you know, scores, all that's great. But when you get someone with grit and guts on the football field that engages your fan base, that's changes that dynamic of your team that changes the dynamic of momentum which is everything in football and I think I, I had enough runs where I would break tackles and I wouldn't back down and I would never run out of bounds or I would always pop back up like one of my things that my dad always taught me was never let them see you down so like after the carry you go look at any film from Rob DeBoer's career and I probably got lazy at this the further I got into my career you go look at any film after I was tackled, I popped up, tried to help the guy tackling me, literally, tried to help him up and would jog back. To, I never once would walk back to the huddle. I would jog back to the huddle every single time. Um, so it was just kind of who I was, how I operated and what made me successful for me. And I think that inspired people, you know, that, that was kind of my formula for sec success for at least for Rob DeBoer. Yeah, I was going to say, Rob, it's kind of funny because I was, you know, I was watching highlights of you on YouTube, different games, obviously from the early 90s. And I didn't realize before I started, you know, doing some research and looking up your bio and everything, because I was looking, I was like, you know, this looks like a guy, you know, early 90s, white running back, you know, the, the big shoulder pads, like looks like a guy that would play at like Nebraska or Oklahoma <laughs> with, without, without even realizing, without even realizing yeah. you were from Omaha, Nebraska. So it literally... Like how they say, you know, boys corn fed. I mean, it's like it perfectly fits into your whole your whole mantra. And I think something you hit on those, like you really don't see that anymore. I mean, Pat, you know, we actually have a gamecock currently in the NFL making it as a fullback, Pat DeMarco, which is awesome because the yep. fullback position is I mean, definitely in college football. I don't even think the fullback position really even exists anymore. Like I don't think it's even a thing anymore. Well Yeah, and you know what? I mean or it's more Look, referred as like an H-back. It's not a true fullback. It is. Well, because now all of a sudden everybody is so scared, and probably rightfully so, of the head trauma. I mean, what was right. – when I played, Chris, your goal was to target every play. Like, you tried <laughs> to target people when right. you tackled. Like, that was – Your, helmet's a, your helmet's a weapon. That's I mean – Helmet to helmet was the way to go. If you could right. get the guy out of the game, you know, you're, you're ahead. Like – Right. That was, you know, part of it. And, you know, back then, what's interesting, what played into my favor also, um, and, and I'll never forget this. Think about this. So I miss my family. I miss my high school girlfriend. I miss all my high school friends who all, by the way, go to the University of Nebraska. Well, I'm going home for Thanksgiving, okay? Mm. After we play the one Thanksgiving game that's on TV just so happens to be South Carolina versus West Virginia my freshman year. Mm. 
Just so happens Mike Dingle gets hurt. Rob DeBoer ends up with, I don't know, I might have had 25, 30 carries on national TV for my whole family, all my friends. Like, that's the only game on in the universe, college football, Thanksgiving night, 1990. Um, So it it was really, you know, that was probably my most memorable moment is knowing I'm going to board a plane to go home to see all of these people that just got a chance to watch me carry the ball 30 times on national TV and win a football game. So, you know, they could say, gosh, I can't believe you didn't go to Nebraska. Well, it was kind of a way to shut up all the naysayers in a way. So it was a really cool experience. And from then, um, you know, we just recruiting got better. You know, I, I think I got hurt maybe my sophomore year, but you know, the long and short of it is I had a great career played with a lot of great players, you know, Kenny Hill, Stanley Pritchett, Brandon Bennett, Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the list goes on of talented running backs and contributors and quarterbacks and whatnot. So um, it, it, the, the university has been been great to me. So it was a lot of fun. For sure. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Rob, because I, I like asking, obviously, everybody about the rivalry. But you being a guy from Omaha, Nebraska, again, you know nothing about South Carolina football. Um, you get to Columbia. And again, you guys were able to beat Clemson in that 92 season at their place. But when did it sink in for you? Because I don't know. I guess back then it would have been Nebraska, Oklahoma was probably like the big robbery. Because what was it? The Big Eight back then was the the conference or something like that. Was that my in the ballpark? You've got, you, you, you know your you know your almanac. You're exactly right. So so <laughs> yeah. what's interesting is like, look, I, I, when you grow up in Nebraska, you hate Oklahoma, right? Mm-hmm. If you grow up a Gamecock, you hate the Tigers. Well, I come here. I don't know anything about the rivalry. We didn't have a competing college in, you know, in the state of Nebraska. So you just, it was Nebraska. Well, our competing college was Oklahoma. It was back in those days when, you know, it was Mike Rozier and Billy Sims and Jamal Holloway and Turner Gill and Irving. Like, I just remember, you know, Nebraska Cornhuskers were rock stars and we were taught to hate the Oklahoma Sooners. So when I went, I remember the very first game, Rich Basaccia, again, the graduate assistant coach, he said, Rob, all I need you to know is you're Nebraska, the people in orange are Oklahoma. That's how you need to approach this game. So that's when the rivalry made sense. But I mean, look, I played back when Chester, we called him Chester the molester, right? Chester McLaughlin. (laughs) Um, You know, we played against some tremendous athletes. Uh, and then finally in 92, we had that win. And um, so, yeah, it, it was it was a great experience, certainly a great rivalry to this day. Unfortunately, a little, you know, unbalanced these days. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, that's always a game that will always be well fought on both sides. And, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So, Rob, you're a guy, obviously, that you – I mean, it sounds like your your mentality as a, as a ball carrier was you're going to be the hammer, not the nail. So, actually, a throwback to uh, – had Corey Boyd on the show a couple months ago, and that was his mantra. But uh, do you recall a time ever at South Carolina where you're in the hole, you go one-on-one with a guy, and you just laid him out? Was there one time that, like, stands out? where I'm sure it happened a lot, but is there one time you remember where you really got somebody? No. To be honest, like, if you look at that West Virginia game, for whatever reason, maybe possessed would be the reason. I I didn't go down easy in that game. And there was, like, run after run where it just engaged the fans because for whatever reason. However, um, I I don't remember what year. We played West Virginia again, 
and maybe it was that year. Uh, I don't know, but I remember Steve Grant. All I remember is number four, a linebacker named Steve Grant, and he hit me silly. It was one of those, he was blitzing, and it was a draw. Well, in a draw, as a running back, you're just basically standing there. So I was just a blocking dummy with this 250-pound linebacker timing the blitz perfectly. No one picked him up. And I swear, Chris, there was probably a concussion. We weren't allowed to have those back in those days. Um, you know, things weren't as politically correct as they are today. Uh, that was one. And then another time, I swear, I came down on a kickoff. You know, when you're a freshman, you try to impress by being on the special mm -hmm. teams. And certainly if you've got this guy that doesn't have any moves but will go full speed straight ahead, I hit somebody so hard. I promise, like, it was one of those where your face mask kind of gets turned and your chin strap comes off. But I promise my eyes were crossed. Like, at least for a moment, I couldn't get off the field. Like, <laughs> I had hit someone so hard. So that was probably a concussion. So those were two that stand out. Other than that, um, you know, I'm kind of low, squatty, you know, center of gravity, uh, stocky, straight ahead guy. So, I, I, you know, it, it, nobody got some real clean shots on me. So, uh, thank goodness. <laughs> For sure. So, you, you mentioned something earlier I want to ask you about because I think it's interesting. Like you said, yep. you, went home, you went home in 1990 after the West Virginia game and it was – after everyone watched you and it was sort of kind of a, uh, you know, this is why I left type thing, kind of a gratification, if you will. 1992, you mentioned South Carolina joins the SEC and, you know, the impact obviously still being felt to this day, just from the financial aspect, from the exposure aspect, from everything that is done for the university. Just talk about what do you remember about, you know, South Carolina signing that deal and, you know, just, just the impact that it had on the university, and I guess you guys approach to the football season, because obviously made a huge impact in the entire university. Yeah, and, and look, you know, Chris, I don't know how old you are. I'm 48. Like, I'm 48. So we're talking about a time where there was no social media. I mean, high school players like me, you know, there wasn't a game day. There wasn't ESPN. There wasn't highlights. Like, the highlights was the Sparky Woods show on Sundays. Like, that was the only time or you saw yourself in the film room. So there wasn't a bunch of hype. So honestly, it probably an underwhelming answer to your question is, we just knew we were going into a league where we were going to play better teams. Right. You know, I remember playing the bookends. Um, Cole, uh, I don't remember who it was for Alabama, maybe in 93 or 94. Uh, Coleman and Curry, I, I think, but we called them the bookends, these two big defensive ends. Uh, Copeland and Curry, I think it was. But, you know, so I was one of those guys that I'm someone where I don't have to be ultra-focused in the locker room. Like I can joke and giggle until you snap your fingers and say it's go time. So if it wasn't go time, I didn't pay attention to a lot of the hype and who are we playing and what's the buildup and what's the, you know, what's the big deal, if you will. So I probably don't have a great answer as far as the impact of entering into the SEC other than it was going to be different. You know, it was structural. Like I didn't know the impact of what it meant to get invited to a bowl game, let alone go to a bowl game. Um, you know, this was just all new to me because here I was a Nebraska fan. Well, Nebraska always went to the orange bowl, like always, that's all I remembered. And so uh, I probably being a two sport athlete, didn't follow it as much. By the time football was over, I was probably ready for baseball. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, I'm certainly glad we did. 
I, I would still argue, and I've got a strong argument that the SEC, I could argue, is the strongest conference mm. uh, in the nation in college football, in my opinion. Um, you know, so it's pretty neat to have been part of that founding process. For sure. Now, you, you make a good point, though, because, I mean, even without the highlights, that back then even the SEC wasn't the SEC like we know it today. Correct. So, yeah. The, the, we, who knew the type of impact it was really going to have when I think there was a stretch where the SEC had won like seven of the last eight national titles or something crazy. But that 92 season as well, I want to talk about that because you mentioned him already. Steve Tannehill, that was, you know, a very notable season because Steve takes over about midseason. You guys win five of the last six games. Just – you know, talk about the type of impact he had on the team as someone that shared a backfield with him. What do you remember the most about playing with him? You know, every every now and again, you run across people that bring the best out in you. Myself is no exception. That was Steve. You know, I, he certainly wasn't the fastest. He didn't have the strongest arm. He wasn't the smartest. But, man, he probably was the greatest competitor and – for a quarterback in the SEC at that time with those earrings, with that hair, he stood out, right? Mm. Nowadays, I mean, if you don't have tattoos, <laughs> you stand out. If you don't have some crazy hair or bald head, you stand out. Back then, it was a statement. So it just made it fun. Um, and he was just such a great competitor that he would help you raise your game. And look, part of what makes college football worthwhile for guys like me is you have fun doing it. And when Steve was on that field and, you know, he could rally the crowd and look, that gets everybody excited. So uh, we had a great backfield. It was myself and Brandon Bennett. I think Stanley Pritchett was one of the packups, believe it or not, who went on to play some pro ball. Um, so, you know, we had great players. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And back then, you know, they had, what was called the roost. Like they had college dormitories right, where right. it was just the football team. You know, I don't know if they had, I, I think it was just the football team mm. by and large. Um, you know, so it was like, you were really a family like that's who you ate with. That's who you had breakfast checked with. That's who you watched film with. That's who you won with. That's who you lost with. That's who you bled with. And I, I, I sense it's probably, well, it's a lot different these days. I mean, they have a freaking DJ out there. They have <laughs> cool, you know, they have tractor trailer coolers right. that you go in if you get overheated. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. It's, it's, it, my equivalent would be, it's like LeBron playing in Jordan's era. It's just a different game. So you can't say which is best, right? Mm. It's just a different era of college football. You know, I've mentioned before, you know, you tried to headhunt, you tried to take guys out, you tried to target. That was the goal. Um, and man, we had some good ones that were good at it. So Steve was, uh, a great leader, you know, uh, with guys that were willing to be led, you know, that's the thing about anytime you have a quarterback, you have to get others to follow, right? Well, nobody's your boss in college. Like you have to be that servant leader that people are willing to follow. And he was just a good one. So I think that's what kind of made that 92 season really special is the team uh, kind of united and started coming together. If you remember, there was like a team revolt. I don't remember. I just remember I was one of four, five guys that said, look, y'all have lost your minds. Like, are you serious walking out on a coach? That's not in my DNA. My dad didn't raise that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we listened to our coach. There is no exception to the coach's rule. And, you know, he was just a – a piece of 
bringing everything back together. So it was, it was a special time. as a special season for sure. Rob, you already shed some light on it earlier, but I want to ask you specifically about the 1992 Clemson game. Again, you guys go on the road there, get the 24-13 to 13 win. Again, we already talked about kind of when it clicked, what it meant to you. But to go there to their place and get the win, what did that mean to you in the moment? What, what, how special was that, getting that win over your arch rival? I, I think it's one of those things where, gosh, if there's one thing I can accomplish in four years, I have to beat that rival. And that was when it was realized, right? The first couple of years, I, I can't even tell you what the scores would have been. I just know that we were outmanned and outplayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 92, it made it really special for a couple of reasons. Number one, I got a good bit of playing time. Uh, had some key runs on third or fourth down where we needed to get the first down and, you know, some extra Rob DeBoer effort got us there. And so I had some cool, you know, roles that I was able to play in that game. But when you've got a cocky quarterback playing in Clemson, I mean, I think it's still one of the most famous pictures where Steve Tanniel's got his hands up and all you can see is orange (laughs) and you see the back of his jersey. That's what made it fun. That's what made it memorable. You know, take that guy out and who knows what it looks like. But (laughs) I just remember Coach Basaccia coming up to me after that game and he's like, is this what it felt like when your Huskers beat the Sooners? And I was like, yes, sir. You know, so (laughs) it was pretty simple to understand what it meant having grown up a Husker fan that hated the Sooners, but not growing up as a Gamecock that hated the Tigers. So it it was really neat. It was very special. And, you know, I think it created momentum moving forward. For sure. So I want to ask you specifically about a play in 1993, Rob, because, you know, I've had Brandon Bennett on the show. We talked about, you know, Bennett over the top, 93 against Georgia. And I know you played in that game. Um, before we talk about that, I want to double check. Were you on the field for that play? Because I'm kind of finding it hard to believe that you were not on the field for that play. I was one of the lead blockers okay, on that, that play. That's what I, I just wanted to make sure because I know Brandon gets all, you know, all the credit, obviously, taking the ball over the top. But uh, I want to ask you, as a blocker, as someone that was on the field during that, your recollection of that play because, you know, I talked to him about it and I had fans. I've talked to fans about it and I've had someone specifically tell me they remember being in the stands in that end zone and they're hearing Steve Tannehill, you know, say, run the same play again, run the same play again after he gets stopped the first time. And Brandon jumps over the top, and obviously, you know, the rest is history. But what do you remember as a guy that was directly contributed to that Bennett over the top play? I remember exactly what you just said is when Steve's yelling, run the same play. Because for whatever reason, we were out of timeouts. Mm. The clock was ticking. We were trying – so two things I remember specifically – was good Lord, everybody get up. We got to run one more play, <laughs> number one. Number two, do not jump off sides. And number three, oh, by the way, what is the freaking play? We're not in a huddle. <laughs> so Steve's yelling, run the same play, run the same play. So it's miraculous enough that we actually line up. Everybody's off the ground. We get set, right? Imagine <laughs> time's running, time's ticking that we even got set. Like nowadays, somebody wouldn't get set. Or somebody would jump off sides. Or someone would say, hey, defense, they just yelled, run the same play. Let's load it up over here. None of that happened. You know, so it was one of those surreal moments. And, look, I didn't realize the impact of the SEC the way I do today because it wasn't the impact that it was back then. 
But man, looking back saying, hey, we beat Georgia between the hedges, that's something cool to say. And to have that memory and to be part of that final play uh, is another one of those memories that, you know, you just can't put a price on. No, for sure. It's it's crazy watching that play back because it's just such a just such a mosh pit of bodies, and Brandon somehow finds that's exactly a, right. It just just somehow <laughs> finds a way to jump over. I'm, I'm thinking you you. It's good thing they had you on the field because you're a guy who likes to stick your face in the fan, and that's certainly what what they needed on that play for sure. And it was one of those where I think we almost left our feet to block. So if you go back <laughs> and look at it. It was either the first, it was the play prior to that or one where I, I think I got a pretty good shot. I can't take credit for Brandon scoring. Uh, certainly I will now, but people can <laughs> fact check. Maybe I shouldn't. But, you know, I think it was where, you know, you just run and, hey, there's this big mob of people. You dive harder than they dive. So basically you got a linebacker and a fullback targeting each other on purpose. <laughs> hoping that they fall backwards, not forwards, mm -hmm. away from your ball carrier, not into your ball carrier. And thankfully, that's what happened. For sure. So, obviously, you wrap up your South Carolina football career. I just want to touch briefly on baseball, and then we'll move into uh, uh, current day 2019 South Carolina football. But your baseball career, obviously, you already talked about, you know, you had a very successful uh, South Carolina baseball career, second team All-SEC in 94. You played professional baseball. I more so want to talk about, as an alum, uh, because again, it I, I'm I was very surprised to see. I did not know you were a two sports star because again, the early '90s in baseball, especially college, are much less documented than football per se. But um, as an alum, I mean, how how cool is it, and how proud are you to be an alum of the bait? Because I mean, back then, I don't think, or I think Carolina baseball was just starting to get into really what it is now, which is extremely proud tradition. I mean, you could certainly argue by far the best program on campus, two-time national champions. Like, how cool is that just to be an alum and to kind of be in that fraternity of being a Carolina baseball player? Uh, it, it's extremely cool. But let me tell you something that's very important, and this is an important note because culture is everything when it comes to college athletics. Mm -hmm. So I want you to think about it. Um, the coach prior to Sparky Woods, Coach Morrison, dies. Mm -hmm. Then there's Sparky Woods. Then there's Brad Scott. Then there's, what was it, Lou Holtz? Lou Holtz, yep. Then there's, you know, I mean, so there were three coaches in a very short period, like back to back to back. So my coach gets fired. Brad Scott comes in. Mm. Brad Scott gets fired. Lou Holtz comes in. Like, and you can imagine kind of the reputation. One thing that wasn't a priority was they didn't embrace the the football alumni the way they should have to create the ongoing culture. One thing I will say from day one, Coach Ray Tanner treated former baseball players. I don't care if you never won a game, if you ever suited up, if you put a, if, if you earned a letter, if you walked on Sarge Fry Field, he made you feel, feel part of that family. So to answer your question, it, it's even more so because he did such a great job making former players feel welcome uh as part of that program whereas before it was just kind of odd right it was just a little strange when you know you've got coming and going and different staffs and who the heck's Rob DeBoer to you know coach Brad Scott's coaching staff and strength staff and whomever and Ray Tanner I guess also him being there for as long as he was he was just really really good at creating a alumni relation so 
Uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is I was sick to my stomach. Like I grew up playing in Rosenblatt Stadium, right? That's where our high school championship game would be. It was a triple-A mm-hmm. oh, Kansas yeah. City Royals place. And then they had the new stadium. And when South Carolina went the first year, you know, it was one of those, gosh, I'm working. I got to take off work. Don't know, you know, flights because, I mean, if they keep winning, then you got to keep changing your flight. So I didn't <laughs> go. And, right. and I mean, damn, if they didn't win at all. So you better believe the second year I was there. So I got to experience <laughs> that second one uh, in my hometown where I grew up playing baseball, being a bat boy, not in the same stadium, but it was still a very cool feeling. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's tremendous to be a part of that brotherhood, if you will. That's so awesome. So really quickly, before we get into current day South Carolina, I know you spent some time as well as a sideline reporter for the Gamecocks. I guess just talk about what that experience was like. And, you know, I guess just how awesome it is, you know, to be able to be like, you're talking about being alumni, come back, contribute to your school, make a difference. I mean, I'm sure that had to be a pretty cool experience. Yeah, it was, I mean, look, so I went to work when I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I opened my own athlete performance training center. So humble. I called it Rob DeBoer's athlete factory. (laughs) Um, It was in the Vista. It's now since, you know, been torn down and shut down and all that. It was a great business, but, Um, I went through some health issues and ended up needing to get a real job. So I went to work at the University of South Carolina for Liz McMillan, who's the general manager of Gamecock Sports Properties with Learfield ISP, I think now it's IMG or whatever, who owns the rights to selling the program ads and the Jumbotron and and creates the content for the Lou Holtz show and the Steve Mm -hmm. Spurrier coaches show and now the, you know, Will Muschamp show. And so I was in that role and they needed a sideline reporter. So um, why not throw your name in the ring, right? Um, I had done some work with WVOC at one point. And so, you know, I could do radio, uh, probably not as polished as I am these days because I do a lot of live speaking. But nevertheless, it was a great gig, especially being part of you know, behind the scenes. Um, I didn't have a son that was playing high school football, so it it worked out perfectly, right? I didn't miss family time. I got to go on the road. I got to fly with the team. The only time that job was less than desirable was if it was a crummy first half and I had to go get the mic in front of Steve Spurrier or Lou Holtz. (laughs) Like, that was my job. And they don't want to talk to you. They have no interest in talking to you let alone that you were a former captain and they don't care. They don't want to talk to the <laughs> reporter. And here's what's funny, Chris, if you'll notice now, and most people would never notice this, but now you can go make note of this. So whenever, and nowadays every game is on a national network of some sort. So you'll notice the home network sideline host or sideline reporter mm. always goes last. So mm-hmm. if oh, yeah. Steve Spurrier's walking off the field at halftime, I'm chasing the ESPN reporter who gets him first. Mm-hmm. So he's frustrated enough talking to the ESPN reporter. Well, then he's done. Well, then I have to go stick my microphone in his face and essentially ask him the same question. So <laughs> that was the only time that job was, uh, high stress and 
not fun. Other what, than that, it was great. Is there any one answer or moment where you had to stick the mic in Spurrier's face and he just gave you a like a, a kind of off the wall answer or just a kind of you know? No, it wasn't. I'll, I will tell you one memorable moment was I was in the midst and I had to be very professional. I was in the midst of the Carolina Clemson fight down on the sidelines oh, on the field reporting live. Yeah. So imagine me <laughs> being taught, you know, for the last decade to hate Clemson. I'm the sideline reporter and I'm down in the midst, you know, fired up, you know, shoot, if you're a former player, Right. Let alone right. former captain. I mean, you you bleed garnet still, and you're in the middle of this fight, but you can't fight. Like you can't. <laughs> you got to be a reporter. So it was, it was a lot. It, it was interesting. So that was probably the biggest memory. Is I'm reporting live from the middle of this midfield brawl between Carolina and Clemson. Wow, that's awesome. So I, I want to talk about the yeah. current day Gamecocks and everything, and you know, just the the direction of the program under Will Muschamp first. You know, obviously, South Carolina's got this brand-new shiny facility, and it's it's crazy the way things have changed. I mean, you look around Williams-Brice Stadium and just the improvements just from even 10 years ago, much less 20 or 25 or whenever. Like, it's it's night and day. It's crazy. But what I want to talk to you about is just how much different – because I know you're into nutrition, training, training athletes. You know, you had the uh, the uh, the business training athletes as well. Just talk yep. – how much yep. different is – because I know back then, like weightlifting and the way you eat, and I mean, none of that was there really. And then some teams started doing it, and then everybody was doing it. I mean, what's how much difference is it from then to now as far as like how how athletes take care of their bodies and train for their individual sports? Well, let me give you an example, and then I'll answer your question. Imagine this for those of you that are followers and somewhat know the proximity of Carolina Stadium. Um, right now they walk across the street. Uh, well, they have this, actually, they have this amazing locker room now in this amazing facility. If mm -hmm. it's raining, they're inside. If not, they're outside. Imagine 1990 to 94 or 93 when I played, you would show up at Williams Bryce stadium. You would go get all of your pads on. Remember South Carolina heat mm -hmm. and you would board school buses and bus over to where the roundhouse used to be on Rosewood Drive. Mm -hmm. So we would get on buses and bus back and forth to practice every single day. The practice field wasn't <laughs> even in walking distance of the stadium. Like so this is to pre, show you this how is proving grounds. I mean, this is even before the proving grounds are there. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Like we literally. So imagine you've got a hundred nasty, smelly, dripping wet. <laughs> guys boarding buses after practice to come back to Williams Price. Oh, and by the way, did you know that there's a train track and trains still come by? And <laughs> so now you're maybe stuck in a train for 10 minutes by a train. I mean, it was just, it was awful. It's like, who thought of this? Like, how could this ever happen? Well, suffice to say, South Carolina is one of the premier facilities now. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be, uh, that's for sure. Right. Um, and back then, look, we had a training table, you know, and, and that's where I think there's a lot more to the story than who your strength coach is and who your coach, like when it comes to, and, and my passion and I lead education for a company when it comes to nutrition and body composition and performance. And that's been a passion of mine ever since 
probably a young kid and that's what I know and I know well. But imagine nowadays, like there's so little room for error, but you can't control because of the NCAA standards, you can't control what guys are eating or when they go to bed or, you know, you can't be with them 24 seven back then it was bed check. Like we, we lived in, you know, a hundred feet away from the cafeteria that only fed football players, you know, so they could control the nutrition. Nowadays, man, it's high tech. So they do everything they can to ensure what's going on. Like I've become great friends with Jeff Dillman, who's an amazing guy. Will mm-hmm. Muschamp, yeah. the whole staff has been great at welcoming me and really any former player, but I've specifically become really good friends with Jeff Dillman. And, you know, you go over there and after their summer workouts, I mean, they've got smoothies with the guy's name on it. Like this one has Mm -hmm. this much protein and this one is this, and this guy is allergic to dairy. So it's got this, like back in the day, it was just like, Hey, peanut butter and jelly and or peanut (laughs) butter and honey, which one do you want? Right. (laughs) Uh, On probably white bread. I don't even know if we had healthy wheat bread or whatever. So, uh, it's changed dramatically, but I think it's had to. And I also think it might be, um, I mean, for the better, but nowadays there's so much damn pampering that I just don't see the guts and the grit across the board. Right. Not just, I'm not saying specifically South Carolina. I'm saying in college football or really probably in life, right? We're now in the day and age where everybody gets a trophy, everybody – gets playing time, everybody makes the team. And I think that's made, I think that's filtrated into all levels of sports where I can't imagine ever tapping my helmet to come out of a game. I can't imagine that. Yet I see that from Gamecock players. I see it from Alabama players. I see it from NFL players. That's just, I, I can't imagine that being in someone's DNA or maybe I just wasn't as smart, you know, but a lot more injuries today, and I think it's directly related to probably lack of sleep, lack of nutrition. You know, I don't think it's poor strength coaching at all. Mm. I don't think it's poor nutrition necessarily from what they can control. I think it's, hey, athlete, what are you doing to control your environment? Mm. And, and I think it starts at a younger age. I mean, you know, what kids eat these days is not as nutritious as what probably – I grew up eating. It, it, it's funny that you say that, Rob, because I don't remember specifically who it was, but I know it was a Gamecock, former Gamecock player from same era when you played that said the exact same thing about I'd never tapped my helmet to come out ever. Like That's the wildest thing I've ever seen. So that is uh, – that is very funny. But, no, I think you bring some good insight, actually, because, I mean, you, you probably see it on social media and stuff. I mean, there are a lot of Gamecock fans. That, you know, South Carolina, obviously, last year the injuries were just – I mean, it was a crazy year for injuries. And then, you know, there's it's been a lot better this year. I think we can all agree. But there's still some here and there. And, you know, fans want to complain and say fire Dillman, which I, I think – I mean, like you're saying, I th- it has nothing to do with strength and conditioning, Coach. A lot of it is just freak injuries. But, I mean, it w- – Would you attribute it to you think guys just aren't taking care of their bodies the way they need to, or is it just truly a freak accident that's happening on the field? You might, this might be a far-fetched answer for the average listener, but science and studies will agree with what I'm about to share. Okay. There's no doubt about it that blue light 
interrupts your body's ability to recover. Mm. How many players are on a smartphone or watching a TV or playing a video game multiple hours a day? Yeah, all of them. Like multiple <laughs> all hours. All day, every day. Right. Well, we didn't play video games back when I was in college. Now, that may seem petty and you know, far-fetched. I'm telling you, sleep is the biggest variable mm-hmm. and rest and recovery. So if we're not getting, I mean, nobody turns their phone off, myself included, you know, an hour before they go to bed. No, they're laying in bed playing the video game, right. turning the TV off and, you know, checking social media. That matters. Like, I think as you've seen, um, the use of mainstream social media, technology, smartphones, internet, et cetera, as that has increased, I'll bet you also has the injury rate. Now that sounds far-fetched, but mark my word, that's going to come out, number one. Number two, I think a nutritionist, not saying we don't have great nutritionists, maybe we do, I don't know them. I'm saying paying very close attention to nutrition and what they're eating, almost monitoring what they're eating, not saying, hey, go eat this, but hey, sit down at this table, let us watch you eat this. I think that matters and makes such a significant difference. We know that. Go look at some of the players like Tom Brady and Christian McCaffrey that take their nutrition as serious as they take their training, as serious as they take their film time, and that's why they have some of the careers that they have. So, you know, I look at it at a very specific level. I don't think the body is recovering as well because of the overstimulation of everything else. Mm-hmm. Not as good food, more stress, more screen time, more technology takes away from better recovery. That's my theory, and I think it is a hypothesis that will check mm-hmm. out in the coming years. Yeah, no, I, I think you might be onto something, seriously. I mean, what, what, is, what has changed? And that, sort, that is the variable for sure. Um, all right, moving into current days. Well, and, 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 and let me say one more thing. It's interesting. I also think, and this could go one of two ways. I also think actual practice, it's nothing like what I used to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? No, there's it's no, two, like I mean, there's so, no two days anymore. It's almost like they're so afraid of injury that it's causing more injury. Does that make sense? <laughs> right. No, for sure. For sure. It, if you, you play scared, you're so, more so likely maybe, to injure. Yeah. Or you play scared or you practice half speed or you practice right. So your body's not accustomed contact. to going, going full your speed. Your body's not a yeah. con. That's right. That's right. right. So that's just, you know, who knows? Uh, I can't speak to it with any mm. other than that's an opinion that would be worth looking at. So when you take a look at this program, Rob, again, as a former captain and as alumni, um, Will Muschamp in his fourth season now, Gamecocks, obviously we're recording this the week of the App State game, South Carolina at four and five right now, trying to win two of the next three to get to a bowl game. But when you take an overall look at the program, uh, what is your take on the job that Will Muschamp has done? And, you know, how do you feel about the current direction of the football program? I think culture is so underrated. More importantly, how long it takes to create the correct culture. Mm. And the correct culture isn't necessarily based on wins and losses. It's based on grits and guts and, and belief and buy-in. You know, I think we're crazy to ever even whisper, get rid of Coach Muschamp, get rid of this guy. Now, look, some coaching adjustments. Look, 
we can all play armchair quarterback. There's always mm-hmm. three sides to every story. I think there's some obvious changes. We've seen greatness at times. We've seen not so great plenty this season. Nevertheless, I believe he's got the culture which matters most because culture creates continuity. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? Get a new coach and start this culture over? That's the worst thing you can do. What you can do is find someone that, dude, nobody works harder than Will Muschamp, right? Mm. Now, you couldn't say that maybe for Coach Spurrier his last year or two. Like, that becomes apparent as all coaches age and go through their careers. Right. But here's a guy, he, nobody's going to out-recruit his efforts. And I think, look, effort matters. Character act matters. Culture matters. So I would say – if we stay the course, we'll end up where we want to be. Not to mention, we're in a freaking tough conference. Right. Like, I don't know what our strength of schedule is, but I know it's top two or top two or three, schedule, if not number one. Yeah. Which, which, which put that into perspective. Would Clemson be Clemson if they played our schedule the last, our same schedule, same teams, not one or two teams? Yes, they beat this team when they were asked to. Yes, they, if they had our same schedule, would they be where they are? I would argue no. I could be wrong. We'll never know. But I'm just saying, so you, can't com- you have to compare apples to apples. And I think if we compare where our program is to where other programs are, yes, there are some imperfections. But I think overall we're headed in the right direction or – the culture is being created that will create that direction. And I think that is so important. Like watching the guy uh, at Florida State, you know, get fired and look, yep, yep. it doesn't bode well when your culture is not even, not even, two, not even two full years, not even two full years. It's, it's crazy. Like you can't create discipline culture in a year or two. You can't. Not, not 18 year old kids that are spending all their time on social media listening right. to how great they are. Mm-hmm. Like, because we don't, we don't have the, you know, hellfire brimstone coaching of the past, right? We have this, we got to tell you what you want. You know, we've got to be easy on you. We can't yank you by the face mask. Like if you didn't get yanked by the face mask, you probably weren't playing hard enough back when I played. <laughs> now, if a coach yanks someone by a face mask, it's like all over the news. Yeah, J- Jeremy, Jeremy, Pruitt got called out. Jeremy Pruitt got called out for it. By a small that blows my mind, and that makes us a weaker. Right. That makes us a weaker nation, if you will. Like, yeah, I, I think it's soft. Philosophical it's it's, it's very soft. It's very, very soft. There's no question. And look, I get it. There's context, but man, so yeah. I, I, you know, back to your question. I, I like where we're going. I don't like where we're at. Um, but <laughs> and. And look, it just takes time. Like, it, there are cycles. There are ebbs and flows. There are ebbs and flows. So, I mean, don't forget, when we had the 11-win seasons, we had first picks in the draft, mm-hmm. right? Oh, we had yeah. first-round draft picks. Like, like, so, you know, there's just a lot of variables. And I think one variable that should be removed from the table, like, is for a coach to ever be considered, you know, for termination when – there's so many variables in play. Mm-hmm. So I, I like where we're at. You know, I, 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 who knows what can happen, mm-hmm. but I think this year I spoke to Dillman this past week and he's like, dude, it's crazy. Like we could go on a four and oh run with this team. We could, I don't, we've yeah. all seen that. We've all seen it. 
doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's certainly not likely to happen. <laughs> you know, I, I would have, I wouldn't have guessed Georgia, but I also wouldn't have guessed Vanderbilt would have been that close. But again, right. a play here and a play here, it's a lot different looking game, right? Right. So, um, anyhow, I, I like where we're at, but I'm the ultimate. I'm not glass half empty. I'm not even glass half full. I'm glass overflowing always. Mm. That's just my DNA. When we were no good and the team wanted to revolt, I was one of four guys that didn't. Look, I don't care. I'm going to go do what I can to turn this around. So that's kind of my philosophy would be to encourage fans, hey, be real fans. Like, yes, get frustrated. Yes, demand. But but you got to just see some things through at times. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. For sure. So, Rob, I'm going to get you out of here. But last question before I let you go. When you take a look back at your career – uh, your favorite memory in Garnet and Black, whether it be on the field or off the field, obviously, because you've been so involved with the program uh, even after your playing days. Um, whew, that's a tough one. Probably the West Virginia game freshman year, 31 carries, 28 carries, whatever it was, a win on national TV for the first time. My family saw me. Like, my dad had to buy a big dish when the dish networks were, like, the size of a – I mean, it looked like we had a UFO in the yard when I went home, like, cause they didn't have cable TV and stuff back then to satellite. So uh, that was probably my favorite memory, my favorite team. I couldn't even name one, you know, um, it was just a great experience through and through. So freshman year, West Virginia win on national TV, the only game in town, 30 carries and we got the win. No doubt. Well, Rob, really do appreciate you taking the time, man. I know I speak for all Gamecocks when I say it was a, you know, pleasure to, uh, obviously it's a pleasure to go back and watch the tape and see just the way you played the game and obviously the way that you represent yourself as an alumni, former captain, everything else. Um, really do appreciate it, man. would love to get you back on the show and obviously get your insight and talk even more about just kind of what you're doing as well with the current day athletes. I think we'll have a lot of conversations coming up here in the near future about you know, just Gamecocks football, and I think these next uh, these next three games are going to tell us a lot for sure. But really appreciate you taking the time, man, and let's do it again sometime soon for sure. Chris, you were great. You've got my number. Let's stay connected. Reach out anytime, and I mean that. I, I wouldn't say it if I didn't. So thanks again. Take care, bud.